Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Talk. I am Matt Zuckerman, newly assistant professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, so exciting developments. We are still going to be working closely with the brilliant people at University of Massachusetts and uh, some of the great toxicologists there, but uh, now we get the opportunity to work with some of the uh, great toxicologists and emergency medicine physicians at the University of Colorado School of Medicine at the Anschutz Medical Campus. And for this episode, I'm very excited to say that we are going to be talking to Guy Weinberg of Interlipid fame, along with other members of his lab, including Michael Fediplace. The uh, interview actually went so long discussing lipid emulsion that we decided to break it up into two parts. So this first part is going to be about the history and kind of the introduction of lipid emulsion and why it came to be used and how it is used for some specific overdoses. And then for the second episode, which should come out sometime next week, we'll get a chance to talk about future directions with lipid emulsion and some of the exciting publications that are coming out about the mechanisms of its effects. As usual, if you enjoy what you hear or have any comments about what you hear, feel free to drop us a line at talkstalk at talkstalk.org. That's T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G or our Twitter feed at TalksTalk or our Facebook page. And without any further delay, here's our interview with Dr. Weinberg. Welcome back to another episode of Talks Talk. I'm Matt Zuckerman. I am very excited today to talk to somebody who I've admired for a long time. Actually, I gave a grand rounds on this person's work uh, when I was a resident. This is Dr. Guy Weinberg, a faculty at the Department of Anesthesiology, University of Illinois College of Medicine, and uh, also working closely at the Jesse Brown VA in Chicago. I want to thank you for uh, coming on the show today, Dr. Weinberg. Thanks uh, for having me, Matt. I might want to start with just a definition. We refer to it as lipid resuscitation, and that means using a injection of 20% lipid emulsion to treat toxicity that affects a cardiovascular system and sometimes also CNS toxicity, usually from lipophilic drugs. Excellent. Yeah, that's a great way to put it because realistically, um, Interlipid itself is a bit of a trade name, right? So um, it is. A, so it is. A, want to talk it is a brand name. I, I mean, I love the history of it. I love. It seems like it all started in like 1997 with with a very unlucky patient with a very special <laughs> disorder. Well, strangely, I had gone to anesthesiology, clinical anesthesiology, for more than a decade, having given up doing research and not intending ever to go back to research. And then one day, I was asked about a patient with a history of isovaleric acidemia and whether she would be a good candidate for general anesthesia. And having had a background in medical genetics, i that's why they asked me, and I just pointed out I didn't think there'd be a problem. But as it turned out, the next day, the patient had a uh, procedure that involved exposure to a very, very tiny dose of bupivacaine. And as a result of that, she had severe malignant arrhythmias and a near cardiac arrest. So 
I suddenly felt like I was uh, obligated to figure out why this patient had extreme sensitivity to local anesthetics. And we were able to answer that question over a period of a, a couple of years by identifying a target in the mitochondria that the bupivacaine molecule inhibits very potently. So that's my long-winded way of saying that I was suddenly drawn back into the research field by a single event where I felt responsible for, you know, a patient's close call. That's that's fantastic. And that's so true. So often as physicians, it's those cases, those encounters that really kind of stick with us or haunt with us. And it's not even those cases necessarily where you were holding the knife per se, but where you were sort of ahead of time. This wasn't even retrospectively, this wasn't an M&M. This was something where ahead of time, they said, do you think it'll affect it? And then surprisingly, there, there was an effect. And I think that that often drives some of the best research. So you worked on it, and it seemed like the idea was, okay, this patient had an abnormality in processing some fatty acids and was carnitine deficient, and, and maybe that predisposed them to some of the cardiotoxic effects of the bupivacaine. And then you kind of – it was kind of impressive. Then you went to an animal model, and you've got this great – from your uh, paper from anesthesiology in 98, you've got this great paper showing – essentially mortality in rodents from bupivacaine with or without a lipid emulsion treatment. Right. We, we didn't go into this expecting to, to look at uh, lipid emulsion. We were just doing that to try to replicate the metabolic effects of carnitine deficiency. Which, in other words, try to replicate in the lab what we'd seen with this patient. And uh, we did that by overloading the rat with lipid, expecting that that would make them more sensitive to bupivacaine. But I got a call from the lab that day saying, well, we gave the rat lipid, but then we were unable to kill it with the bupivacaine. So that was an aha moment for us. And we just uh, followed up with experiments that you mentioned, and we're able to demonstrate that giving lipid before or after bupivacaine would attenuate the toxicity. Honestly, you were trying to kill the rat, and you, and you ended up saving the rats, although the, <laughs> the mortality fraction was still 100% in both groups, but but the, the treated group tolerated much more toxic, right. toxic bupivacaine. And it's a great, it's it's just an example where a graph is worth sort of a thousand <laughs> words or a picture is worth a thousand words. So, and then there's more animal research, which is fantastic. So often, you know, my colleagues in emergency medicine, we just pick something up and try it. And we're not always as successful or as, as patient with bench research, but you did a great job of working on animal models. And then I didn't know if you were officially affiliated with this, but I think the first human case, at least that I saw in the major literature, was in 2006 from a very unlucky patient who was getting a rotator cuff surgery. Exactly. So this was a, a case that was quite unexpected from my standpoint, because what was the likelihood that a practitioner would have read the literature and made the mental transition to a clinical setting? Because it's a fairly local anesthetic toxicity is fairly rare. That day, Meg Rosenblatt, who was familiar with the literature, surprisingly enough, was giving a lunch break in an operating room. And on the way back to her office afterwards, she walked by a full cardiac arrest scenario with CPR ongoing. And when it became clear that it was a result of local anesthetic toxicity, she thought of going down to the pharmacy and getting lipid emulsion based on dosing recommendations that had come out just uh, in a letter to the editor following a paper we had written. And the patient responded just like the rats do in the laboratory with a, a very, very rapid return of, of heartbeat and vital signs. 
No, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's anyone who hasn't read the case report, I would highly recommend it. It's from Anesthesiology 2006. We'll put a link on the website. And it's just, it's it's interesting, too, because so many, so much uh, literature can be very dry. But this case report, you know, talks about the 58-year-old guy who came in for rotator cuff surgery, who it's a pretty, pretty, pretty typical, pretty routine procedure, got some bupivacaine, got some epivacaine, and then... Actually, this is a, a good case in point, too. Patient developed seizure, which CNS affects one of the big toxicities from bupivacaine and from some uh, locally acting anesthetics. Uh, Well-thinking provider thought, oh, I can treat a seizure with propofol, gave propofol, propofol's other effect, unfortunately, is, of course, cardiac depressant. So the combination of the two seemed to precipitate everyone's favorite flatline. And then... Over the next 20 minutes, the patient got 3 milligrams of epi, 2 milligrams of atropine, 300 of amiodarone, 40 units of vasopressin, and was shocked at 200, 300, and 360 multiple times going through VTAC, VFib, and asystole. And this is the other problem or issue, essentially, with especially bupivacaine or a relatively longer-acting local anesthetic toxicity is you can get the patient back, but once you get them back, they just code again. And it seemed like at that time, and in many places even now, the the standard is, okay, you can get them back, but unless you get them on bypass, they're not going to make it through the episode. Right. And I'd be remiss in not pointing out that there was an earlier case that did not reach the literature until after Meg's case report in anesthesiology. So in 1998, Reiner Litz in Dresden had a similar case of an elderly patient with a history of heart disease who uh, got an overdose of ropivacaine, and he used lipids successfully in that resuscitation but was prevented by his department chair from uh, publishing that because uh, the department chair thought it would indicate that they had a substandard care in their department. So it's sad to think that somebody who obstructed publication of an important case report left (laughs) – clinicians in the dark about this for another eight or nine years. So That's incredible, too. And yeah, that's good to note. So if you see something, say something, I guess is the um, is the phrase. But yeah. And so essentially, but the patient is, yes, is about to die. And then they give the lipid emulsion therapy after all of this. And then all of a sudden, there's cardiac rhythm returned. And I can literally imagine the high-fiving anesthesiologists and surgeons and, and people in the room <laughs> and the sort of the beads of sweat that were then could be wiped off. So how did you find out about the case, actually? I think the case occurred in late 2005, and I was asked to review a case report. So I you can imagine how, how surprised I was when I opened that that paper, you know, the PDF file, and saw that somebody had used it, and that the result was exactly what we'd seen in the le- in the lab with a very very rapid return of EKG. So uh, we're very happy. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's always great when the random experiment occurs and allows you to kind of you had a human a human model, and at that point there was some cautious optimism that specifically for local anesthetic toxicity, specifically for this sort of outcome where you get fatal cardiac arrhythmia, that administration of lipid emulsion could be an additional therapy, preferably after failure of standard resuscitative measures. Right. So there is an evolution here, and I think that's what you're alluding to. When I wrote the editorial accompanying Dr. Rosenblatt's case report, it was clear that we had to be very cautious and recommend the use of lipid only after the failure of all the standard methodologies. And after that, there was, I wouldn't say a deluge of papers, but a lot of case reports coming out, including some suggesting that earlier use of lipid was of benefit in terms of preventing progression. So interestingly enough, 
in the next spate of papers that came out, and this was in anesthesia and analgesia a few years later, I wrote an accompanying editorial with a completely different point of view, which was essentially don't wait until the patient is dead. You give the drug earlier, and you have a much better chance of saving the patient if they haven't already become acidotic and been given multiple doses of epinephrine and rounds of other resuscitative drugs. So I've seen an evolution in my own thinking of this over the past decade or so. Great. And I think that's what tends to happen with this. The other thing, though, is every antidote is probably misused more than it's used appropriately. Um, and we see this in all fields of toxicology. You know, I have something that reverses opiate overdose. I'll just slam it into somebody who's a little sleepy. Or, you know, let's give somebody charcoal six hours after their ingestion when they're vomiting. And with the lipid emulsion... So first of all, it seemed like there was a broadening of the use of it. And partially, I think this is a unique area also, because with most novel therapeutics, they are limited access, they are have to be FDA approved, they're going through a specific pharma approval process. This one, though, was something that everybody already had, because we've been using lipid emulsion for nutritional purposes and other purposes for years and years. So it was really something that everyone could use cheaply and easily. And I think that maybe contributed to the explosion of case reports of use. And then also people are very comfortable with low side effect profile. And we can talk about that in a minute. But so so just everyone started using it. And then even I mean, there's a case report where somebody was really sleepy on I think quetiapine and sertraline and was going to get intubated, which really has nothing to do with cardiovascular toxicity and gave it and then seemed to wake up. And this is also as with all tox literature in a very messy setting where they're getting four or five other therapeutics at the same time. All of those topics that you raised, a lot of very good ones. I mean, so we have a classic example of translational research and then uh, a repurposing of a drug that has essentially a 40-plus year history of safe use for one indication into another indication. And maybe I should have mentioned at the very outset when I gave you a definition of lipid resuscitation that the typical treatment, which makes it different from the use of Lipid emulsion is a TPN, where it's infused slowly over many, many, many hours or days, that lipid resuscitation for reversing toxicity essentially amounts to a loading dose, which is given as a bolus. Say in a a typical adult, it might be on the order of 100 mils of 20% intralipid or 20% lipid emulsion, followed by a steady infusion at at some fairly brisk rate, something on the order of 0.25 0.25 mils per kilo per minute for your uh, local anesthetic toxicity. And this is a good opportunity, I think, Matt, to point out that um, one of the really important messages I want to get across today, if I can, to your audience, is that although lipid resuscitation was developed for local anesthetic toxicity, which is a parenteral toxicity, we'll call it a canonical parenteral toxicity, where the toxidrome is acute but short-lived, It's been used now for an entirely different purpose, which is the oral intoxication, the enteral ingest, the enteral toxidrome, if you will, which is typically, as you know, much, much longer. And so this is my way of saying or leading into the idea that we really need to establish a different set of parameters for its use in oral overdose than we use for parenteral overdoses. Because while we know fairly well what kind of a regimen will be effective for, say, bupivacaine toxicity when it's used in, say, calcium channel blocker overdose or tricyclic overdose? We don't really have a good handle yet on what an optimal regimen would be to improve 
efficacy and increased safety as well. Yes, I think it's what causes us to slap our foreheads sometimes is that it's generalizing a very – because the initial recommendations were very specific both in the manner of the toxicity you were treating and when it was indicated. And now things have gotten broader partially because it seems to be so promising but also understanding that the pharmacokinetics of an oral toxicity are very different than those of an enteral or an injection toxicity. And people don't always get that. And sometimes I feel like people have actually started to view it as like intravenous charcoal. And that kind of gets at the whole theory behind how it works. But so, I mean, I, I personally, we had a case where there was a patient that um, uh, took uh, Wellbutrin uh, or a lot, of, a lot of SNRI, developed uh, seizures and ultimately got very sick and, and ended up passing away, actually. And there was some discussion retrospectively as to whether or not uh, lipid emulsion would have been beneficial and then the very next case we got of somebody overdosing on a similar agent, they were tachycardic, they were a little bit edgy, and the care team was like, should we give them lipid emulsion? And we said, well, how much benzodiazepine have you given them? Oh, we, we haven't really given them any. And so sometimes I think that um, we tend to react to the last case we had. And so it's important to understand it's a very promising therapeutic, and you are really behind a lot of the research and education about it. But hopefully we can all kind of discuss when it's time to pull it out. Maybe it's a good time to just mention how that transition from the parenteral to the enteral use occurred. An anesthesiologist in private practice outside of Philadelphia in sort of a small community hospital was asked to intubate a young patient with a very severe overdose of bupropion and uh, lamotrigine. And it was basically a suicide attempt. And after admission to the MICU, she had a cardiac arrest. And the ECG traces in this one were particularly malignant. So she had roughly 90 minutes of absolutely full ACLS. She had everything that can be thrown at her. And when Archie Siriani was uh, called to start an art line if he could, this is 90 minutes after he'd intubated her, he's the one who made the call to the poison control center that told him that they didn't know a lot about bupropion, but it was a sodium channel blocker. He made that connection and, strangely enough, called his wife at home to ask her to pull the journal article of Meg Rosenblatt asking her what Meg had used to treat pupivacaine toxicity. Called back a few minutes later to tell him that it was lipid emulsion, he went and got that and sort of as a very, very last-ditch effort before the code was called, they gave the girl 100 mils of uh, lipid emulsion and within a minute or so she had a normal vital sign. So in other words, it was exactly like the rat experiments again, rapid reversal of toxicity. So I think that the patient was very lucky because she did end up leaving the hospital intact, but Archie was very lucky, too, that he somehow happened to give the right dose at the right time. I wonder if he had maybe given it earlier, if it would have worked or not. And somehow there is a key in that case to helping us unlock how one should administer lipid emulsion in this setting for its optimal effect. And uh, I, I, I think that we have a lot of work to do to establish what that will be. Right. And actually, so we're, we've dived into the history in terms of the initial progression from really accidental discovery in humans to animal research back to applying it to humans. And since then, 
everyone has to say why. So why does this work? And I feel like there is the simple, easy answer that everyone likes because it's kind of like what we know in terms of charcoal in a way in our thinking. And then there's the more complicated answer. And it seems like the reality is probably somewhere in between. Now, just to clarify it. So, so um, actually, do you want to just mention sort of the, the theories behind its effectiveness? Sure. So, Obviously, we're interested in working on the mechanisms of uh, the mechanism of action of the lipid resuscitation. And in that first paper in 1998, we proposed a number of possibilities. And at that time, even though the uh, partitioning effect, or you could call it in common parlance, the lipid sink effect, where basically you view the lipid as a sponge that takes the offending agent away from targets of toxicity into the bloodstream. That seemed like a very simple explanation, but we didn't really believe that that was what was happening because the reversal of toxicity was so quick that it didn't seem that you could account for the rapidity with just a simple partitioning if you had to take into account all the different diffusion barriers that were involved between the target and the the little spherule of lipid floating around in in the bloodstream. So we were looking for other possibilities, and because we got into this looking at a mitochondrial effect, we thought that maybe the lipid was reversing a mitochondrial effect of the bupivacaine and improving fatty acid metabolism, which is what the bupivacaine impairs. So our two ideas at the time were a metabolic effect and a partitioning effect or lipid sink. And you referred just a short while ago to this new paper that is just coming out at Journal Controlled Release. First author is Michael Fettiplace, who's a graduate student in my laboratory. And the title is Multimodal Contributions to Detoxification of Acute Pharmacotoxicity by a Triglyceride Emulsion. And I like that title because at no point does it say the word lipid sink in it. (laughs) The key word is multimodal because we really believe now that it's a combination of effects. And so we're going to cut it there. I know we were just about to get into the meat of how lipid emulsion and lipid rescue works. And uh, some of you have it down pat and some of you are curious. And I think that actually you'll be surprised by what you hear in the second half of the interview where we really sort of go behind the curtain and look at some of the advanced theories about the mechanism of action of lipid rescue. And uh, so I encourage you to keep tuning in and tune into the next episode next week for more information on that. Once again, if you have any comments, questions, commentary, you can reach us at TalksTalk at TalksTalk.org. That's T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G or our Twitter feed or Facebook page. We are excited to be working with the University of Colorado School of Medicine and excited about some other developments about working with some great people in the field. Toxicology is a small world with a lot of uh, wonderful people in it. And so the more people we can get involved with something like ToxTalk, the happier we are. So I look forward for future developments soon. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off.